Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we are here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, as we said last week, we are in the throes of the Christmas season. In case you didn't know. Yeah. We had to say it. <laughs> in case you didn't know what day it was. In case you didn't know what season we are in. Or maybe you're listening to this like months down the road and it's no longer Christmas season. Oh, that's fair. Okay. In I'll current times. My, yeah. It I'll is. take my sarcasm back. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you're that. You're welcome. And as we look ahead to the holiday, uh, we wanted to let you know that this will actually be our last episode of 2022. Oh. <gasps> We are going to take a two-week break for the holiday, and we are excited about the new episodes that are going to drop in the next year. And we just want to say thank you for being with us in the journey of 2022, and we hope that you will continue to be with us in the journey of 2023. Can you believe that? 2023. Did you think you would live this long? Yes, absolutely. It was always an open question for me, but here we are. I mean, are you are you alive? What does it mean aye, aye, aye. to live? All right, get on with the episode. All right, but before the year is over, we wanted to have at least one more conversation that has the potential to go absolutely bonkers crazy. Not in terms of listens, but just in terms of like the, the unwieldiness yeah. of what's yes. about to happen in the Kynos Project World Headquarters. Uh, and actually, in a way, it's inspired by the holiday season, because as we think about Christmas, we're thinking about the birth of Jesus, hopefully, and we often think about what is called the doctrine of the incarnation. And the incarnation is this idea that in the person of Jesus, God took on human flesh, and he took on human nature and what theologians call the hypostatic union. And that's basically, all that is saying is that Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, his divine nature and his human nature. And because that is sort of a mysterious sort of thing that only happened once in all of history, uh, theologians through the millennia have pondered the exact like mechanism of that and how to best understand it and how to best speak about it. But in recent times, some theologians, and we may or may not want to put scare quotes around theologians um, in this particular instance, have gotten perhaps a little bit fast and loose with how we discuss that. And some have begun, begun to theorize, and some have even begun to declare that Jesus was trans. And that means something a little bit different to different people who are saying it, as we'll see uh, by looking at a couple of different arguments today. Um, but that's the question we want to tackle today. Was Jesus trans? Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Buckle your seatbelt. We'll take a break and we'll talk about it in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, so there have been some recent discussions about Jesus being trans. And right out of the gate, there are probably some people hearing that who have some immediate and well-founded concerns. But in the spirit of theological and intellectual honesty, I wanted to actually look at three different arguments that have been made and kind of do a cursory sweep to see if there is anything legitimate in what they're saying. And I've sort of ordered them from most outlandish to least. And so we'll start with the one that recently was making a lot of waves and a lot of headlines. And this is what I will refer to as the revisionist history argument for Jesus being trans. So I'm referring to it as revisionist history. So that kind of tips my hand on how I feel about it. Only slightly. But I feel like once I explain it, uh, I don't think there are very many people who would judge me for coming at it with kind of an immediate bias. So this argument, it originates from a guy named uh, Joshua Heath, who was a junior fellow at a Cambridge, uh, University of Cambridge affiliated school. I think that the, the school is called Trinity College. Um, and he apparently made this argument during a sermon. I couldn't find like where he gave that sermon, if it was in a chapel or if it was actually in like a local church. Uh, but his whole argument revolves around the fact that in his estimation, throughout the millennia of artwork depicting Jesus, it could be argued that Jesus has historically been depicted as a trans man meaning a biological female who has transitioned into being a man. And in one example, he showed an artistic rendering of Jesus on the cross, and he argued that the spear wound in Jesus' side, quote, takes on a decidedly vaginal appearance, end quote. I'll just let that linger for a second. Then he showed another artistic rendering of Jesus uh, kind of being carried down from the cross and he's being being held by others. And the blood from the spear wound in his side, it kind of flows down towards his groin. And he said that that is suggestive of menstruation. Okay. So this was the argument that he made during a sermon, apparently. And while the dean... Uh, who Heath serves under at this college, came to his defense, the sermon understandably got some pretty serious blowback. Uh, it was reported that some people in attendance literally broke out into tears during the service. Uh, other people stormed out. There was another guy who shouted, heretic, like mid-sermon. Uh, but Dr. Michael Banner, who is the, the school's dean, he said this, For myself, I think that speculation was legitimate. Whether or not you or I or anyone else disagrees with the interpretation says something else about the artistic tradition or resists its application to contemporary questions around transsexualism, end quote. He also later clarified that Heath wasn't actually trying to say that Jesus was trans, but it kind of seemed like he was, but he said this, quote, the sermon's exploration of the nature of religious art in the spirit of thought-provoking academic inquiry was in keeping with open debate and dialogue at the University of Cambridge, end quote. So right off the bat, as you hear this, what, what is your estimation of this argument for the trans identity of Jesus? Um, 
this guy can't be for real is my, you know, a theological take on it. It just, it seems disrespectful. It seems like you're making light of, um, of who Jesus was as a human being walking on the earth. And then just from a logical perspective, how are you going to analyze artwork throughout history as if that is a true depiction of Jesus in the first place, right? We should also note that Jesus was white in all of these depictions as well. Right. Like there's a lot of issues with the depiction of Jesus. And so if you just follow the history of artwork in general, it it doesn't exactly match what we see within scripture, which we don't get a whole lot of descriptive features of what Jesus looked like, but we definitely knew where he was living and the fact that he would look like the people in that region. And most of the artwork we see, he is white and he usually has like blue eyes. Sometimes his hair is blonde, sometimes it's brown, but he definitely looks more like a European man than someone who lived in the Middle East, right? Uh, And so just looking at artwork to try and understand who Jesus was and this idea that Jesus could possibly be transgender based on artwork is just not a good argument in the first place. And then looking at the artwork within the historical setting of the place of that artwork, you're completely taking even the artwork itself out of its cultural place and its cultural understanding because there wouldn't have been a whole lot of framework for this type of topic, even within the cultural setting of when these artistic paintings, drawings were created. Right. Yeah. It's a pretty anachronistic understanding, even of the artists themselves, meaning that we would be forcing our modern day cultural conceptions onto subjects in the past that would have no idea what we're talking about. And so I kind of have a hard time buying that this is like a good faith argument that this uh scholar was making oh it's not yeah it just seems like it was was more just kind of antagonizing right i think he it honestly just seems like he's trying to rile people up a little bit and maybe trying to think about something in a very creative direction but that is it just you can be creative in other ways there's myriad ways to be creative you don't necessarily need to do it this way yeah yeah, so it strains credulity at best that this was a good faith argument. And certainly the artists at the time would not have been thinking that Jesus is trans. Um, and if they were and they were open about that, then at the time of these uh, these art- artistic renderings, they probably were risking being burned at the stake. So, And mm. even if they did like have this thought of trans identity, it would have been so outside their moral framework that it... it This is just not a likely scenario, that this is what they're trying to depict. Right. So from a biblical breakdown, it it doesn't match, right? Because he's purely going based off of artwork that was not created by anyone who actually knew Jesus during the time Jesus walked on the earth. So that's a huge issue. And then secondly, the next major issue against him is that he's not even serving the artist well in taking the time to understand their cultural context and even what they would have had in mind as they were painting or drawing or, I mean, I don't know how else you create art, then, but painting or drawing. So he's not even keeping in mind that cultural context. So he's 
kind of just creating an argument out of thin air and looking at a piece of artwork and interpreting it in whatever way he chooses, which I know there's then that aspect of interpreting artwork, but this really takes that way too far. Right. We definitely took a left turn right out of the gate on this. Um, so I feel like we can dismiss this argument pretty much out of hand. But this isn't the only argument that has been made, uh, even if it is the worst. And so to say that this represents the whole Jesus was trans argument would be to commit uh, what is called the fallacy of composition, uh, which is where you take uh, the worst of something and argue that it represents the whole. So this doesn't represent the whole. So we soldier on to the other parts of what this argument will look like. So that was like the... Um, revisionist history argument of Jesus being trans. Now I want to turn to something of kind of like a scientific argument uh, that Jesus was trans. You can put scare quotes around it. That's fine. Okay. Uh, But in this argument, which is perhaps best summarized in a Huffington Post article by Suzanne DeWitt Hall, and she wrote this in uh, 2016, it was titled Jesus, the first transgender man, um, and in that article, she tries to establish that the the birth of both Eve and Jesus were both transgender phenomenon. And with regard, regard to Eve, Hall says this, quote, God reached into Adam, pulled out a bit of rib bone, and grew Eve from that XY DNA into Adam's companion. She was created genetically male, and yet trans formed trans dash formed into a woman end quote and with regard to jesus hall says this then along comes jesus and the whole pattern is both repeated and reversed the first couple's refusal to cooperate is turned around by mary's yes and the second act of cloning occurs that's interesting that she uses the word cloning the holy spirit comes upon the second eve and the child takes flesh from her and is born born of her flesh born with XX chromosome pairing, born genetically female, and then trans-formed into man. So her argument rests on the fact that because both Eve and Jesus were born without the presence of both an earthly father and an earthly mother, then somehow uh, they didn't have the requisite chromosomes for the genders that they became. And because of that, ipso facto, both of them were trans. All right. Yep. There it is. Science. There you have it. (laughs) 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 You just always think when people say science, it's, yeah, like this is for sure must be the answer, right? Because now now we're talking science. Uh, But if we were to really understand this from a scientific perspective. Um, She's not even talking science the way that it's supposed to be, right? So when you understand how um, like biological sex happens in the first place, it is in utero, right? So you have a baby and um, we definitely hold to the view that life is formed at conception but when it comes to the actual sex of the child that happens like later on even though all of the all of the 
I guess, ingredients are there to form the gender or sex of this child. That doesn't happen until a little bit later into the process. It's determined at conception, I believe, if I know my science well enough. But it doesn't present you don't until pre- later. Right. So you can't... From our scientific advancement, we don't actually know that until a little bit later on, even though it's already been decided earlier in this process right right but we wouldn't look say so you're pregnant right now and we know that we're having I am? we're having a boy <laughs> what <laughs> we wouldn't look at the ultrasound and you know a number of weeks ago and say looks like a girl and then look at it now and say well i see something popped out there we have a trans man right in your womb yeah and so that's kind of this that's kind of the logic that she's using right is that um, there was something happening within utero and then that all of a sudden changed because we just didn't know where the X and Y chromosomes were at and where they were coming from. And yeah, again, from a scientific perspective, that also falls apart because it doesn't even follow the way that like biology happens even today, which biology didn't happen differently back then. Yes. And another argument against that is the virgin birth in and of itself is a miracle, right? Like, how do we apply science to say, well, here is the way that Mary ended up having a baby? Well, yeah. And like, how do you in one stroke of the pen solve 2000 years of mystery? Yeah. Just going, you know, XXXY. He was trans. Um I mean, I'm being frivolous, but I mean, if you go and read the article, like she was using a a fair amount of snark to refer to Christians who were like, well, if you're going to take the Bible literally, um, you, you have to take it literally always, which is true. But then she goes on to make leaps and bounds in just her assumptions in what that means. Right. And so there's a little bit of snark coming from her saying this is a foregone conclusion, when that's actually the the question at hand, that it's not a foregone conclusion, because right. we don't know what happened. And if we can accept that there was uh, a miraculous birth exactly. of a virgin, mm-hmm. then we can. It's not too far outside of the realm of possibility to also accept that when the Holy Spirit miraculously implanted that that child, that He also miraculously gave that child a Y chromosome. Right, and it's to say that. God can do the miracle of Mary being a virgin and still having a baby, but not the miracle of that baby having a Y chromosome. Exactly. Yeah. Like it had, it could have only come from Mary. It could have only been female. There's just no way it could have been anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also just, this is, I feel like an obvious point, but, um, when Jesus was born, he was born as male and everybody knew he was male and accepted that he was male, including himself. There was no point at which Jesus outside of the womb gave any indication that he was anything other than a male. He never transitioned. Um, so this kind of quote unquote scientific argument, um, it's not very I mean, scientific. Anybody, like anybody's guess as to how the virgin birth occurred is as good as any other guess, but this is just a wild guess like any other and, you know, very much based in the ideology that was brought to it as a presupposition. Right. Yeah. And that's why this is second on the list, because it's probably not 
the most likely or best explanation in regards to this argument in general. Right. But there's one more that we want to look at, and we'll dive into that one in just a moment. So we kind of looked at the revisionist history argument for Jesus being trans, which we're like, well, that one was not good. And so we kind of dismissed that one out of hand. Then there was a quote-unquote scientific argument for Jesus being trans, which was very much based in speculation as well. But there's one more theory that I wanted to explore. And this one um, is probably the best of the three. I mean, I hesitate to say it's the best because I'll give away my hand right from the top. I'm going to come out disagreeing with it. But it's it's. I feel like it's the most uh, honest, I guess, uh, in that the argument isn't that the historical Jesus was trans per se, but it does argue that uh, his experience of becoming a man resonates with the trans experience. And so I kind of call this the spiritualized argument of Jesus being trans. And in this theory, it argues that while Jesus never transitioned during his life, that he has empathy for the trans experience. And the basis of that empathy is that having been a part of the Godhead, which is technically genderless, from eternity past, and then becoming a biological man, some have argued that Jesus understands what it's like to be living in a biology or living in a body that feels foreign to his true identity. And this is kind of the experience of trans people, right? Who uh, suffer from gender dysphoria. They feel that the biological sex that they have doesn't uh, match the internal identity that they have. And that's kind of the catalyst for their transition process. And so the people who argue, argue for like this spiritualized uh, theory of Jesus being trans, they say that in this way, Jesus is, you know, the sympathetic high priest to borrow the language of Hebrews 14, who can empathize with the experience of trans people um, by virtue of the fact that he, quote unquote, transitioned from having a, a divine nature to then having a human nature. This is the argument that I've heard. Actually, this is the only one that I've heard in this area prior to us thinking about this for the podcast. And it is interesting in that it's trying to say Jesus understood it from a spiritual standpoint because, you know, he was fully God and yet fully man. And so there must have been some type of um, a split in his internal identity that he was trying to function in. Right. So he has this human body. Um, but it doesn't quite feel right. It doesn't quite feel like his own because he didn't have a body before. I think I I get it. I understand the process of trying to work through this. And then you do see in scripture that there isn't anything that we experience or encounter um, in our lifetime that like, Jesus can't empathize with. Uh, but I don't think that is so detailed in the way of like every single life situation Jesus has encountered, but these very large and general ways, like he can empathize with that feeling of being alone and abandoned and having to move forward and not know what that was going to look like. And a lot of ways that's 
like been the expression of many transgender people, right? They feel very isolated and very alone. And um, it's, it's just such a confusing time for them in general. So again, I understand it a little bit, but I think it's taking it too far. Again, I think it's looking at the incarnation of Christ and trying to build in something within our own modern culture. Um, And there's a lot of different ways you can do that, but I don't think it's fitting to what we see within scripture to try and say, therefore Jesus, I not identified, but therefore Jesus could empathize in a very personal way with someone who's transgender. Yeah, I can certainly empathize with the sentiment of this one. Um, but I don't think that this theory, this theology, maintains a robust sense of orthodoxy when it comes to the incarnation or the hypostatic union. Because for one, Jesus didn't transition from one bodily nature to another which is kind of the experience of a trans person when they transition from one gender to another. Jesus didn't do that. He had a divine nature, and then he added to that a human nature. And so those two natures, they didn't mix. There have been entire church councils on this very point. Those two natures didn't mix or intermingle, and yet they coexist in the one person of Jesus. And so Jesus wasn't giving up a nature to take on another one. He wasn't giving up one bodily existence to experience a different one. He had a divine nature. He maintained that divine nature. And then he added to that a human nature. And again, that's a unique phenomenon in all of eternity that honestly doesn't have anything to do with gender identity. And secondly, we're never given any indication in any of the gospel accounts that Jesus felt dysphoric about his body. Right. Like there's never um, any passage in scripture that, that would suggest that Jesus had turmoil over having taken on human form. Or even turmoil over his identity, right? If we want to kind of move that out to a little bit more of a general area, uh, he's fully God and fully man. And you just never see any conflict with those two things in terms of any personal wrestling about that. And for people to build an entire argument, like there has to be some type of biblical support that Jesus expressed tension in this way. We can't build the tension into scripture that doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. And really the only words we get about Jesus's physical development and his experience with his own biology and body comes and it's pretty opaque. It comes in Luke two fifty two. It says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And so what this suggests is that really from the outset, Jesus was doing exactly what he had intended to do, um, that there was there was no distress involved in this. There was no seeking to find a new identity. Every instance that we see Jesus speaking about himself, um, he's securing his identity. He knows exactly who he is. He knows that he's a son of the eternal father. 
Um, and he knows that he's also the son of man. And so he's at peace with that. So it really reads something into the, the text to say that Jesus wrestled with this feeling of feeling foreign in his own body. And also, if we argue that Jesus felt dysphoric about his nature prior to the incarnation, so we, we already know that there's no evidence that he experienced dysphoria during the incarnation or after the incarnation. Right. And if you argue that he experienced dysphoria prior to the incarnation uh, and his so-called, you know, quote-unquote transition into a human nature solved it or somehow allowed him to experience his identity in a way that he couldn't before, then that would mean that God is not perfectly self-sufficient and blessed within himself from eternity past and that he actually needed humanity uh, in order to self-actualize. And that's a fairly pagan understanding of deity, which we see in the mythologies of most notably of like uh, the Greeks and the Romans. Like their gods are basically just like supersized humans uh, with all the same problems and conflicts mm-hmm. and shortcomings as humans and often needing humans for help. Uh, the Christian God is unique um, and it was even more unique in the ancient world Uh for being completely self-sufficient and blessed from eternity past, having complete, uh, completely perfect relationship with himself in his triune nature, being one God, uh, that that is, it's an essential of the Christian faith that when yeah. we, we look at who God is, when we start to mess around with this idea of Jesus having a trans identity, um, we really start to kind of kick at the foundations of who God is uh, from eternity past. And so in order to adopt this theology, we'd have to surrender some pillars of the, uh, of, of our theology that are actually key aspects that make the Christian faith unique. Yeah. And that's not to say that Jesus doesn't empathize with the tension and the wrestling that transgender um, people are feeling, but to go so far as to say Jesus um, wrestled with that himself personally is to really overturn a lot of uh, fundamentals of the faith. And it's to read a lot into the text that just doesn't exist. Right. But I think there are um, certain impulses behind this idea uh, of people saying that Jesus had a trans identity and he could identify with uh, the trans experience. Um, I don't think anything we're saying is to say that Jesus can't sympathize with the plight of those who experience gender dysphoria or um, uh, just the whatever uh, turmoil comes along with that. I just don't think that we need to start monkeying around with the doctrine of the incarnation or the hypostatic union or the the triuneness of God or the eternal blessedness of God in order to reasonably say that. I think we can reasonably say that without having to surrender any of those things. And I think probably the the best example of that um, would be to look at Jesus uh, on the night he was to be betrayed. Like that was like, you know, Jesus was completely human and fully human, but really in, in many senses, that's where we see him at his most human. Right. Because that's where he's like pleading with his friends to stay awake with him, to be present with him. And what do they do? They fall asleep. They fall asleep. And he's 
you even hear it in his prayers to the Lord, like, please let this cup pass from me if there's any way possible. Like you see that um, very real picture of his humanity. And I think it's, you see it in this emotional state that he's in as he's in under so much stress that he's sweating blood and he can relate to those types of tensions within our own lives, within our own um, just experience as humans so certainly Jesus can relate in the in the way of empathizing with people, um, transgender people, and even just different experiences within life that that lead us to just so much distress internally and this feeling of loneliness and not really knowing how you're going to keep moving forward ahead. So yeah, Jesus can empathize with that. Absolutely. Um, but again, to say... The only way he can empathize with that is that he himself was transgender is trying to take that too far. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's important not to gloss over the, the, the human, the humanity and the shared humanity that Jesus would have, even with someone who's struggling with their gender identity. Um, Cause when you look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, you're looking at a man who like quite literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he even told his closest friends, his, his disciples that he was grieved unto the point of death. And he just felt like so alone and so isolated and so troubled. And like, even when he like reaches out to his best friends and says, just stay up with me, uh, and pray, uh, they, they fail to understand the gravity of the moment I mean, and they were tired. It had been a long week. If you read uh, that chapter or those chapters of scripture where they're in Jerusalem, it was a crazy week. They were exhausted. But even still in that, they they failed to meet him where he needed to be met. And they failed to understand the gravity of what he was experiencing in that moment. And they fell asleep. And he was in turmoil. He was uh, reaching out for help. And um, it felt like there was no help there for him in that he had to continue on in this very troublesome uh, thing that he was going to have to do and that he was going to have to be betrayed. He was going to have to ha- go through this mock trial. He was going to have to endure uh, not only ridicule, but physical torture, uh, humiliation, being hung on a cross and ultimately death like that. He knew that that was going to be his next 48 hours uh, and his friends and the ones closest to him failed him. And if you're someone who struggles with your gender identity, um, that's probably speaking your language. Mm. Like, yeah, where this is a, a very long, dark experience that you can be having. Um, and I think when it comes to this kind of discussion and someone says, you know, Jesus was trans and that gives them some kind of comfort, I... I fear that sometimes we are too quick to say, well, that's ridiculous and that's, you know, unorthodox and that's heretical. And I think a lot of times the way the argument is made that, yes, that that is true. Uh, but I think also we it's it behooves us to look past that to see the underlying turmoil that is associated with that. Um, and that's something that, Scripture speaks to with great compassion and Jesus himself experienced, if not being transgender, something of just the weighty, the weightiest, um, 
measure of despair a human could feel. And to feel alone in that moment. Yeah. And though I don't believe any of these arguments are good arguments or um, anything that we can really like rest our hats on, what is beneath these arguments is really a desire for Jesus to be able to be with you and present with you and understanding, right? I mean, that's, I like you said, that's great hope for someone who is wrestling with gender dysphoria, who is wrestling with uh, not feeling like their own body makes sense and, and feeling like they are not the right gender, like, we have to empathize with that as Christians too, but in an even greater sense, like Jesus meets you where you are and he's presence, present with you in that space. And it's more than him just like patting you on the back. It's okay. But it's really weeping alongside you and standing next to you and being in those dark moments when it seems as if no one else is there with you. And in that way, we can see the hope of Christ for people who are wrestling in this way. It's not the hope of Christ in the fact that he himself was transgender, but in the hope of Christ that he is with you in that dark time and he is walking with you through that. And he is present with you in those times when you just don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And I think, even to like looking to uh, Jesus as him wanting to have this cup uh, pass from him, but then also um, surrendering to the idea that the father's will was going to be done in his life and not his own. And I think even that speaks to um, those who are experiencing gender dysphoria. Like I will never understand what it's like to be uh, dysphoric about my anatomy um, to an extent where uh, I feel like I'm, I've been misgendered. Um, I mean, I've experienced difficult things in my life that I can understand what the emotions feel like, even if I don't know what it's like to experience them in that context. But I think even as we look at Jesus um, moving forward in God's plan for him, I think there's something to that with um, the trans community or those who experience gender dysphoria that that God has created you in a certain way uh, with your biology and um, God didn't make a mistake in that even if it feels like it was not correct um, according to how you identify internally I think we can look to Jesus who endured stepping forward in what God had called him to and that not being something that was kind of frivolous or light or easy. And so the same measure to which he did it, he can call you to that, knowing that he walked in that himself, that he he's um, willing to and already has uh, gone to the same lengths of obedience and stepping into what God has called him to, that he's calling you to do the same thing. And... Again, I don't want to make light of that. Like, you know, God made you a certain way, so you just got to deal with it. Like, that's not, like, that. that's the message, like, that is said, like, offhand, I feel like, too often that doesn't really take seriously the experience that someone is having. Um, but I think 
even in taking serious the experience that someone was having, um, there is the message that, that God has created you in a certain way and is calling you uh, to live into uh, the identity that he has given you. Um, that is evidenced by the way that he created you, even down to your biology. And that's where the hope of Christ lies in all things. It's not so much in the fact that there's a theology that fits to the exact experience that we have, like in a one-to-one way, but truly this is even a greater sense of hope that someone who is experiencing any kind of gender dysphoria can hold on to. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean the road is just going to be, you know, rainbows and unicorns ahead. But there is that road of long obedience and, and really gripping to the promises of Christ that in spite of what you're enduring on this side of eternity, that Christ truly has something so much greater for you if you just continue to take one step after another forward in obedience to him and knowing that you're not alone in that. Like you're not alone in this like isolated island of walking towards the things that Christ has for you, but that he's going to be with you and, and hopefully there are a community of people surrounding you in that process as well. But the richness of what Christ has for you on the other end of that is so much greater than what you can fathom. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Lauren DeVille, a practicing naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona. In my podcast, Christian Natural Health, my guests and I discuss topics ranging from nutrition, sleep, hormone balancing, and exercise to specific health concerns like hair loss, anxiety, and hypothyroidism. I'll also interweave biblical principles as they apply throughout the podcast because true health is body, mind, and spirit. Listen to Christian Natural Health for free at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcast platform.